Papers destroyed by the Home Office, forced out of work, denied cancer treatment, held in detention and deported. Those are just a few of the terrible stories we've heard about the treatment of the Windrush generation over the past few months. The hostile environment made me feel like I'd, I was an alien. Like I didn't exist. Targets for removals, when were they set? Uh, we don't have targets for removals. But you did. I, I don't know what, what, what are you referring we to. Just heard... We've had a change of Home Secretary, but will there be a change in policy? The government set up a Windrush task force in April, but is it going to right these wrongs? And what does the hostile environment policy say about the UK's difficult relationship with its own history? On the Weekly Economics podcast today, we're talking Windrush, immigration, race and the economy. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. This came back and told me, you're illegal. That's probably illegal. I've been here from my eight years old. This is a day of national shame. So, hello again, lovely listener. We're back for a brand new series, and we've got some amazing guests coming up over the next couple of months. And this episode is, of course, no different. So, to chat about the Windrush scandal, the fallout, and all things race and the economy, I'm really pleased to be joined by Omar Khan, who is the director of the race equality think tank, the Ronnie Mead Trust. Hi, Omar. Hello. Um, and we're also joined by the writer and researcher Maya Goodfellow, who is also working on a book about the immigration debate in Britain. Hi. Hello. Thanks for joining us. No problem. Awesome. So we're going to kick off with our usual roundup of the economic stories that you might have missed, um, so that might have not got enough attention in the press or, or whatever. So we've been away for a little while, and there's quite a bit to choose from. But uh, Omar, what is a story that you think our listeners should know about? Well, I saw the story that this week the JCWI, the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants, uh, won in its uh, case to try to bring the government to account on the right to rent scheme. Could you quickly tell us what the right to rent yeah. is? That'd be great. Yeah, so the, the right to rent scheme is part of the hostile environment that we're going to talk about later. Uh, it requires landlords to check people's documents. And mm. the issue is essentially that landlords aren't used to checking people's documents, passports, etc. And... Obviously, there's a high demand in the private rental market, and so there is an incentive there to refuse people before they even get rented to, to say, I'm not sure about your documentation, I'm mm-hmm. not sure if you're actually legally entitled to be here, the Home Office is going to fine me thousands of pounds if I get this wrong, and so it, it actually makes it rational, it incentivizes landlords to discriminate on grounds of race and nationality. So that that has been unchallenged, but the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants and, and many others, including Runnymede, have been questioning whether this is lawful. And, to, and this week, the High Court has agreed to allow JCWI to bring that claim forward against the government. Wow. Okay, so hopefully we can get back to that later. Mm-hmm. But for now, uh, Maya, what story have you got for us? Yeah, so I've um, picked uh, the story that came out, I think, last week that uh, Justin Trudeau's government in Canada wants to nationalise the Kinder Morgan pipeline. Uh, so that's to make sure what was going to be an expansion of that, the capacity of that pipeline, to make sure that that actually goes ahead. Mm. Um, so that is going to cost them, it's estimated, it's going to cost them about um, $3.45 billion US dollars. Um, and I think that this is a really interesting one because a lot of attention has been focused on Donald Trump and what's going on there with mm-hmm. what is essentially a a man who doesn't believe climate change exists in the White House. But actually we have someone who is almost a liberal poster boy who's doing this massive um, 
really massively damaging uh, nationalization plan. And really interestingly, the finance minister called it an investment in Canada's future, which I think is mm. a, quite a troubling way of looking at this. And I think to, to look at this in, in the context of Trump um, and what's happening in the US, it shows us that it's not just about individuals the individuals occupy these um, heads of state. It's about a profit-driven model. And the, mm. the impact that that has on the environment, I think we sometimes lose in these conversations. We become fixated on growth mm. instead of thinking about actually the environmental impact of some of the decisions we're making about our economy. Mm. Okay, thanks both for flagging those uh, important stories that we probably have missed with everything else going on. Uh, so for now, we're going to move on to our main discussion, which is about the Windrush scandal, uh, race in Britain, um, the economy and migration. So this is a, uh, a story that's particularly close to home for me um, because my grandma is Jamaican and, and came uh, came over here in the 60s um, with and has lots of kind of uh, friends and, and colleagues and family members who have been very affected by what's going on. Um, and so we're going to we're going to start by talking about that a little bit. So the, the story came to a head at the end of April with the resignation of the Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, over the issue of deportation targets and her statements to Parliament. But what's happened since then and what's the latest? So since then, uh, there's been obviously the appointment of Sajid Javid as the new Home Secretary. Uh, he met quite quickly with uh, high commissioners from the Caribbean to try to underscore his commitment to this, has sort of stated that this is a top priority as uh, among the other things in his brief. And they've also established, uh, well, a consultation now on a compensation scheme. So they are now uh, talking about compensating people for, it's unclear exactly what, you know, will the full costs of, of, of the harm of losing your job, for example, be compensated for, or will it just be compensation uh, for the costs of, say, having lawyers take forward cases that people didn't need to take forward because they were, in fact, uh, legitimately here and often legitimately uh, British, in fact, British citizens. Mm. I think there are some question marks around the task force. So initially, uh, we and some others raised concerns about whether or not information would be shared with enforcement agencies. Um, so if people came mm. forward to try to determine whether or not they fit the Windrush generation cases... And this is an issue, you know, where, what is Windrush? Where does it end? Mm -hmm. Of course, the, the Empire Windrush came to Britain in 1948. It landed here uh, in Tilbury Docks uh, 70 years ago this, this June in a few weeks. You know, the, the, the sort of cutoff is often seen as the 1971 Immigration Act. But in fact, you know, there are children affected and grandchildren mm -hmm. affected, mm -hmm. as you've just explained. So it's, it's going to be quite tricky, I think, for the government to be tidy and neat about who is the Windrush generation in terms of who has been badly affected by these policies. Mm. So was this then, was the Windrush issue one of those situations of kind of like bureaucracy leading to illegality or, you know, it was kind of framed up as a clerical error by the civil service, you know, as a little bit of an accident. But who was kind of to blame for what happened, I guess, is, is what I'm asking, because I know both political parties have blamed each other to an extent. Well, it's certainly true that after Empire, the British state was a bit piecemeal in the way in which applied citizenship to uh, former colonies and former members of those colonies. So you can talk about the, the failure to offer equal rights to people on the basis of race, depending on the background of their parents or grandparents. So this idea, uh, this which is not just an idea, it's a legal uh, concept of patriality. Uh, your grandfather or grandmother had to have been born on the island of Britain. So it wouldn't have mattered if your grandparents, all four of your grandparents, all eight of your great-grandparents, all 16 of your great-great-great-grandparents going back, back, back. 
were all born British. So there are, of course, people from the Caribbean who literally you can go back to their eighth great-grandparent and all of those people were British. Mm. But following uh, decolonization, um, the British state sort of half half decided that those people couldn't have full claim to live here. But obviously some people came, um, and it was there. there is some unclarity, I think, about their status uh, in the law. But the current problem that we've got is clearly related to the hostile environment policies, and that's clearly related to policies developed by Theresa May when she was Home Secretary. Mm-hmm. And I do think that's part of the problem here, which is now that she's Prime Minister, it's quite difficult for the government to backtrack on those policies. Those are the policies uh, that were... In fact, the signature policy, I would say, of the immigration reforms uh, that that she made and, you know, the the Home Office has been implementing uh, ever since. We and many others raised concerns in 2013 and 2014 and, you know, every year since that this policy will lead to direct and indirect discrimination on grounds of nationality, but also on grounds of race, that British-born ethnic minorities would be uh, picked up in this. And as we've seen this, that, that is the case. Whilst I agree that the the blame lies with this hostile environment, I also think that the fact that we've even, even been able to arrive at a place where a government can have a policy that they openly call the hostile environment, mm. that they are proud of, really tells us a lot about the long history of anti-immigration politics in this country, even after the 1948 Act, which uh, which gave people citizenship rights that they basically already had, successive governments, Labour and Tory, tried very hard to make it so that migrants from what they call the new Commonwealth, so that's essentially the Caribbean, India, basically countries that you have populations that are not white, they Mm. tried very, very hard through numerous different ways to make it more difficult for those people to come until they Mm. realised that they needed labour. And then it was was a a question of having that labour but not wanting that labour to be here, even though they had a right to be here. So this is very much about Britain's empire. I think mm. we can't understand any of this without understanding its imperial history. Mm. I mean, if you read the sort of debates in Parliament in the 60s, it's very clear that politicians at the time knew what they were doing. I mean, there there mm-hmm. are members of the House of Lords who stand up and say, this is, of course, a racially discriminatory mm. act. And this is mm. the 1968 act passed by the Labour government. Mm-hmm. So it's certainly true. But I think the specific problems that this group now face are down to this requirement to provide four documents mm. uh, for mm-hmm. every year you've been here, which, of course, many of us would struggle to to provide. And I think that was one of the things that got some people in the media and some people sort of across the political spectrum to, to realize just how difficult and crazy this is. Of course, we're told by, you know, our banks that you can delete bank statements after seven years. And, you know, here we're being asked to provide four documents for every year we've been here back to 1971. I mean, it's mm. just not not viable for for most for most british citizens with this ta- task force that you mentioned earlier in your opinion what does the task force need to do is there a kind of best outcome following this um i guess two questions is there a best outcome uh and what will happen <laughs> two very different questions maya do you want to jump in I mean, in terms of the Windrush generation, I think the the best outcome there is making sure that all those people are given the right status. Mm -hmm. I think that that's really key. And actually, yes, some form of compensation for exactly what has happened. And some people were deported years ago, right? And and now they're being able to reopen those cases. So there's that too, right? Yeah, exactly. What... What should happen? And what will happen? What will what will happen? <laughs> yeah. So dreams and reality. I mean, I I think I think 
Omar probably knows better than me on this. I think it's really difficult for the government to not try to um, sort out this situation because it's been put under the spotlight so much. Um, that doesn't mean it necessarily will be sorted out. So mm. I think keeping an eye on that, because as soon as these things fall out of the news, it becomes more difficult to hold the government to account. People become less interested in it. We, we've seen that with Grenfell. Mm -hmm. It was very much in the news, and now it's in the news again because of the inquiry. But, you know, that gap in between, people are still living their lives. They're mm -hmm. still being affected by what's happened. I do think the pressure to provide justice to the Windrush generation narrowly conceived will probably be delivered. But that, but what I mean by narrowly conceived is sort of people who can, mm. you know, who are over 50, so who, can't, who, who can demonstrably prove that they arrived in Britain before 1971. Mm. Um, and I think they, they will be able to prove that. I think the government has shown uh, greater uh, laxity in terms of what kinds of documents they'll allow. They're, they're being a bit more liberal mm -hmm. in what kinds of documents will count. Um, but whether or not, you know, so... Uh, there was a case the other day of a woman who was asked to, t to do a DNA test to prove her children were actually hers. Mm -hmm. So this is going to be continue, continue to be a racially disproportionate, uh, if not discriminatory policy. It is quite tricky to design a restrictive immigration policy that doesn't discriminate mm -hmm. in those ways. And we maybe need to be a bit more honest about that. Mm. So last last question on uh, Windrush before we zoom out a little bit. So there's been tons of uh, stories over the past few years about the, the many ways in which the government has been um, discriminating against migrants, you know, from detention centres to uh, particular communities being demonised and, you know, the things you mentioned around uh, rent controls and docks not cops and all that kind of stuff. So do you think there's a specific reason why the Windrush story resonated with people in a way that, that perhaps others other things didn't? Well, firstly, I think we need to recognise the huge amount of work it took to even get this in the public eye, right? Mm -hmm. So the attention of um, the reporting from The Guardian and that people like, those communities really trying to make themselves heard. So this hasn't happened overnight. It didn't just happen when it became a news story, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that recognising that what it took um, to get there... And then I think it was really seeing the human side of this. I think what this tells us is that when people see the humanity of other human beings, it becomes more difficult to feel this hostility towards people that we often see in our immigration discourse. Mm. Yeah, I think the, the fact that the human stories came through so powerfully, I mean, the case of, you know, like Albert Thompson, who was denied cancer treatment, uh, he was actually living homeless. I think people really felt a sort of sense of injustice and unfairness at that. Um, but I and, and I think another point that perhaps we don't know enough is they were older uh, people. All of these people mm. had worked mm. their whole lives. Um, so you had that very strong narrative of long-term contribution and settlement in Britain. And, of course, the sort of scariest images that we have of migrants are refu young male refugees um, who haven't yet you know, worked a day here. So I do think mm. there is a question over whether or not the sympathy that uh, transpired for the Windrush generation, which I think was genuine across the political spectrum. I think, you know, that raises questions for us about what kinds of allies and alliances yeah. we're willing mm. to to go for, to stomach, if you want to put it that way. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, I think it did amplify the issue when the Daily Mail came on board, mm. whether or not they were driving the messages that all of us would have wanted them to drive. 
But I think they were genuinely disgusted by this treatment of, of, of these particular individuals. I think the second thing that I wanted to flag, uh, because I think it was important, was the international dimension. Mm-hmm. Um, so we organized a meeting along with JCWI with um, 13 Caribbean high commissioners, so Barbados, Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago, t- 10 other countries, uh, about five days before the Commonwealth head of governments meeting. Mm. And of course, Britain had invested a lot of uh, time in trying to use that meeting to promote Britain as to the Commonwealth mm-hmm. uh, post-Brexit. And that meeting only happens every two years, but we knew it was happening in London, so we deliberately you know, planned for that meeting to be five days before. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when the letter was then sent to Theresa May from those high commissioners. So, uh, you know, one of the things I think that reveals is rather than our past always being an asset that Britain can deploy to find new markets post-Brexit, our past is also an Achilles heel that if we don't properly manage is actually something that can be used by campaigners to hold a government to count on issues of migration. And I think that's another interesting message for those of us who would like to see uh, you know, more liberal attitudes. The press in India and in the Caribbean were covering this story and it was embarrassing the government. Mm. So you touched a little bit on Brexit there, so I kind of want to pick that up. So as you say, there's been a lot of debate, especially around the the referendum about the the economic impacts of migration or benefits or whatever, and particularly around this kind of migrants contribute narrative of you know people are valuable if they can contribute economically. I guess just a couple of a couple of key points for for listeners on the your understanding of the actual economic impacts or or benefits or whatever of migration. Just in a nutshell, maybe a couple just a couple of <laughs> couple of minutes be great. Um, I mean, I think that it's it's really well established that immigration doesn't undermine uh, the economy. So it doesn't undercut wages in in the way that we're told that repeatedly that it does. There's studies, I think, from the LSE that show that. There's there's multi, so so much evidence to show us that it's not immigration. It's really bad um, employment practice. It's lack of rights. It's lack of trade union rights. It's there's so many other factors that are going on in the economy that mean that it's not immigration, but it can look like it's immigration, and it's, it mm. seems quite convincing that it is. Because the evidence shows if you have more people coming into a country, they pay into the public purse, that mm-hmm. money can be invested in schools, it can be invested in roads. It just just so happens that for quite some time now, successive governments haven't been doing that as much as they should be. Yeah, I think there's sort of three different ways that sort of the economic arguments go. I mean, one is the macro level, does the economy grow or not? And it's quite clear that immigration at the sort of macro level is good for Britain. Um, but then people sort of say the point that Maya raises, which is, well, maybe it's not good for everyone. And in particular, it's not good for people at the bottom of the income distribution. It's not good for people in certain regions. And here, too, the evidence is not as strong, but it's pretty clear that there's no strong evidence that wages at the bottom go down. If anything, it looks like they go up slightly. There's a sort of uh, lump of labor fallacy here that economists <laughs> like to talk about. Not only is there not strong evidence that uh, migration uh, depresses the economy generally. There isn't really evidence that it depresses uh, the wages of the low paid. And I think the third issue is the one uh, of services. Uh, You know, does Mm -hmm. it increase pressure Mm -hmm. because of demographic change on school places, on on maternity services? And I think there it's obvious that demographic change, um, Mm -hmm. you know, does 
change the nature of the services provided. And I think it is an important point, but it's not one that's solely linked to migration. So if you are in a local authority that is aging, so say Dorset, where the median age is much higher than the median age in London, then of course you should spend more money on certain kinds of hip replacements uh, Mm. in those areas. And similarly, uh, if you know that there's going to be a rise in the under six population, you have to build more primary schools. But that's not driven just by immigration. That That's mm. driven by wider demographic change that also happens in terms of internal migration. So some British cities mm. are shrinking, some British mm. cities, cities are growing, and those are about British-born white British people, you know, moving around to find the work. So, yes, we need to uh, – I think – I think this government and indeed the previous government haven't been attuned enough, especially between censuses, to try to tackle how those shifts in demographics do create differential demands on different kinds of public services. And Mm. just really quickly on the services point, because I I agree, um, and actually what the evidence seems to suggest is that a lot of people talk about um, migration happened under New Labour, so people coming from Eastern Europe. Well, what a lot of the evidence suggests is a lot of those people were young, they weren't coming with children, they weren't using the NHS, so actually they were paying into the system, and what happened is there just wasn't very good planning, and there just wasn't Mm -hmm. enough investment in those services that were then used, right? So that isn't immigration Mm -hmm. that's the causal factor there that is poor planning it is not enough investment those people have actually contributed but that money has just not been used in the right way so last question on uh, on the wider stuff so a lot of people will have seen uh, the clip a couple of weeks ago of a man rescuing a child from a balcony in paris mm-hmm. so uh, mamadou Salma <laughs> from um, mali has been dubbed spider-man and mm-hmm. uh, granted honorary french citizenship by macron um, so what does that story say about citizenship, I guess, migration and the whole idea of sacrifice, contribution? Is there anything to, to learn there? I mean, I think it really tells us that you have to be superhuman. You have to show <laughs> that you are uh, you know, better than the rest of us mere mortals to be able to get that citizenship if you're from a certain country, if your skin is a certain colour, um, if you don't have a certain amount of money in your wallet. And this mm. is the thing that I think was actually quite depressing about that story is he shouldn't have had to have risked his life climbing up a building Mm. in order to be able to get citizenship. But what we see is very, very rich individuals being able to come into countries, pay their way into countries, being able to buy multiple passports, buy citizenship. Mm. Um, Whilst, you know, people who are low paid, people who are from certain parts of the world is a constant battle to be able Mm. to qualify. So I think actually this really showed us just how bad the discourse is Mm -hmm. that this is a cause of celebration of of course I mean he did an amazing thing but Mm -hmm. it shouldn't have to take him doing that to be able to get citizenship and actually just very quick quickly there was another case I don't know what the outcome of it was but of a man who in Britain who had risked his life to save two children from a burning building and then was told he couldn't have citizenship so Mm -hmm. (laughs) it also may tell us that Britain is slightly worse than France when it comes (laughs) to these things always a good lesson Um, Omar well, I don't. I don't have much to add. I mean, I generally agree with that. It's it's a bit uh, concerning. I'm just trying to think how might we pivot from that? Like, how could we use that to shift the narrative more? And I think there's two things. Is you know, in a way, at least the deservingness isn't just money here. So if people do good things, uh, you know, uh, then uh, we have a wider conception of you know what contribution looks like. I suppose is one. That's argument positive. That, I feel good that, about that. that, that, that yeah, you. and the second thing, maybe, maybe, maybe uh, again. I mean, the fact that he is from Mali, I think, is quite worth thinking about. So how we can make people not exaggerate cultural difference, Mm. that that people from these other countries are these sort of share value, don't share any values Mm. with us, don't have any of the same commitments as us. Actually, he's demonstrated that 
that we all, that most human beings do share a lot in terms of values and commitments. And he was willing to sacrifice his life for someone he didn't know, someone from a different background. And actually, that's quite common, and that we really need to, uh, I think, shoot down more these exaggerated claims of cultural and uh, difference. And so arguably, you know, this might provide uh, optimistically, I'm trying to put on my optimistic hat, uh, you know, an opportunity to think, yeah, may- may- maybe think, maybe people aren't so different after mm. all. So final question while, while we've got you here. I, I, you know, we've talked a little bit about um, how we need to be in the, in these times, you know, in between the scandals, in between the kind of eruptions, uh, building and planning and and, you know, and preparing for, for what's to come. So I guess for listeners who might be interested in doing that or thinking about how they can take action to prepare for another, a similar event, I guess what would your advice be? Where should we be putting our kind of energies or efforts right now, whether it's narrative, whether it's specific campaigns or whatever, um, for the, the highest chance of m- making some progress on this? I think it's quite hard because yeah. my answer would be we need to do a lot of different things. So I think we need better campaigning and advocacy. I think we also need uh, organizing as well because, uh, you know, it's great to make a good argument around why Windrush is an injustice. But unless there's sort of people behind you, unless there's votes that the government sees mm-hmm. they might lose, unless they see that there's a there's some sort of skin in the game for them, then it's quite hard, I think, to push merely through uh, the force of good argument. And I think the Windrush case did show that, you know, uh, we did some polling, actually, uh, with mm-hmm. some others, and, you know, we were able to show that 80% of the population was with us. And that was, I think, it, it is decisive. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet we don't really have, for, especially on race, but also on immigration. I mean, you couldn't mobilize, you know, 10,000, much mm-hmm. less 100,000 people. There are 8 million black and minority ethnic people living in Britain. That's more than the combined population of Scotland and Wales, how often do we hear their voices? So I do think there's some work to be done. You know, that that's one other hopeful thing, I think, here, which is uh, the, for the media to, to reach out and listen more to the migrants. Because I, as Maya said, those human stories are quite powerful, but they will need support. You know, for Albert Thompson, who was denied cancer treatment, who was made homeless, who was given a 54,000-pound bill, and then is asked, you know, go on the BBC and talk about this. That's Mm -hmm. not going to be easy Mm -hmm. for him. Mm -hmm. And we need to make sure that, you know, we're supporting individuals like that as well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I I would agree. I think that that there's multiple things that need to happen. We obviously need to see a whole shift in the narrative around immigration. I think that this provides an opportunity to, to, to push it. We need better policy. So I actually think that not enough work has been done on the left to think about what some of the, the alternative policies could be. There's policies we can get rid of, like the hostile environment. We can make sure that there's legal aid. But actually, what would an immigration system look like is not entirely is not entirely clear at the moment. And I think that it has to go beyond party politics. Policies aren't going to solve all of this. What we really need to see is really strong anti-racist organising in our communities. We need to see immigration, the justice for migrants at the heart of that as well. And I think that that is something that needs to be developed. It's going to take a long time. But, you know, there are some groups doing this stuff. Migrant Voice does stuff like trying Mm -hmm. to get people's migrants' voices in the media making it really clear that Im- you don't just talk about immigration in isolation. You talk about it in relation to the economy, you talk about it in relation to social services, you talk about it in relation to all the other changes that, that have been going on in people's communities, like the technological changes, how people, you know, go to the supermarket now and they don't necessarily see a person, they see a machine. Like, mm. a lot of this is put on Im- immigration, a lot of this is blamed on immigration. And I think actually trying to broaden out some of these these, these um, messages as well is actually key to shifting that narrative. 
there has been some evidence of a softening of attitudes, even before mm-hmm. Windrush, which mm-hmm. I think is worth reflecting on, but also, you know, being cautious about, because I think there's two or three sources, and one of those is the expectation that mm. Brexit will reduce immigration. Yeah, um, and so, of course, people kind of feel, well, we had our chance to sort of express our dissatisfaction mm. with immigration. So I think mm. that's a sort of warning sign that if post-Brexit we don't really see mm. immigration numbers come down, which I'm skeptical that they will because non-EU migration, which we do control, is running at 200,000 mm. um, and is actually rising, yeah, I think the second reason is is the media. So in 2016, there were something like 290 front page stories on immigration, almost all negative. And in 2017, there were 97, so mm. a third as many. I, I do think that the the especially the tabloid media have been most anti-immigrant and who were also, of course, the biggest advocates for Brexit. They've chosen not to have as many immigration stories on their front pages, and I think that has softened attitudes. I think, you know, the drip, drip, drip is still going on, but a little bit, a, a little fewer drips. Okay. <laughs> so relatively hopeful message at the end there. Um, well, I could talk about this all evening, but unfortunately that's that's all we have time for. Um, thank you so much, Omar Khan and uh, Maya Gedfollow, for joining us. If people want to hear more from you, how can they do that? Uh, Running Me Trust is on Twitter, and we have a website, uh, www.runningmetrust.org or at Running Me Trust. I'm also on Twitter at Omar O'Malley Khan. Fantastic. Uh, Maya? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Maya Goodfellow, and um, I will have a book coming out relatively soon. So mm. if you want to read more about this, then uh, you can check that out. Yeah, you have to come back and uh, chat to us about it. Okay, so that's it, lovely listener, for this week. Um, if you have enjoyed this episode, tell someone. <laughs> you can drop us a line with your comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes. We are at Weekly Econ Pod on Twitter. The Weekly Economics Podcast is produced by James Shield and brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. See you next week. Bye.